If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hello, welcome to Survive the Jive. Today I have a very special guest, Dr. Edward Dutton, adjunct senior lecturer in anthropology at the University of Ulu in Finland, and the owner of the Jolly Heretic YouTube channel, which I, my wife and I enjoy watching. It uh, has all kinds of interesting and amusing uh, takes on cognitive ability and uh, intelligence, the, the genetics of intelligence. It, you said that was a fair uh, description of your channel? Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Yeah, yeah. I, I try to deal with I deal with intelligence, and I also just try and deal with controversial topics that we're not supposed to talk about. I find those attractive. So that's pretty much it. Yeah, and you do it in a very amusing and entertaining way as well. Um, so I highly recommend everyone who doesn't know about the channel to, to subscribe to it after this stream. Um, but today we're going to try and cover some ground which uh, is across the sort of the common ground that our two channels sort of cover because um, uh, Dr. Dutton, Ed, you used to, your original studies were, if I'm right in saying, were in religion. And um, obviously I have a, an interest in the history of religion. I studied paganism at university. And now I have become interested as a result to supplement my, my studies of history in population genetics and migrations. And I'm interested in how genetics can help us to understand the changes in religions that occurred in the late Neolithic and the Bronze Age in Europe, which were, uh, which were caused by what is now understood to be the Indo-European invasions um, from Eastern Europe into Western Europe. Um, but your, can you tell us a bit about your uh, expertise in religion, uh, in, the, in the background to your understanding of genetics? Oh, well, yes, I, start, I started off uh, studying, when I was a PhD student, st studying fundamentalism. So I, when I was at university in Durham, there was this group called the Christian Union, and they were extremely gung-ho with regard to religion. They were, they were very countercultural. They were absolutely not what you'd expect. As a, I didn't, it really hit me like a, like a lead bullet. That, that, that they were so religious and so conservative, and you, know, you couldn't go into a nightclub in case the world ended while you were there, and then you couldn't look God in the face if you did that. And, um, and so I was, I was fascinated by these people, and I I was particularly fascinated by differences in it. So why was it that at some universities, i.e. the university I was at, and also at Oxford and other universities like that, the, the Christian Union were huge, i.e. the universities where people were probably the highly intelligent, really. Um, and, and then uh, sort of polytechnics, former polytechnics, the, the, the Christian Union were very small. And I was very, and very not very fundamentalist either. So I was very interested in this. Um, and then but the, the, the theories that I came up with and that we, we were kind of taught in, in the context of social science, they were question begging. They were things that just didn't make sense. And, um, and independently, I started reading about things like intelligence and personality and the genetics of these. Uh, and then, of course, it, it started to kind of what I was seeing at these universities started to make sense sort of more, more, more clearly. And so this then got me into intelligence in general and the genetics of intelligence and the genetics of personality and then simply the genetics of religion and the evolution of religion and how it is that religion has been selected for 
I mean, a lot of people don't realize that religiousness is, it's people know old people become more stressed and they become religious and it's a coping mechanism. And that's a widely understood pop psychology. But what a lot of people don't realize is that religiousness based on twin studies is about 40% genetic. Um, and not only that, but the there are personality characteristics, which are at least 50% genetic, which um, relate to how religious you're going to be. Um, and there's a degree to which intelligence and openness to new things interacts with religiousness. And so there's a very strong genetic element to it. And there's good reason to think that religiousness was selected for um, under Darwinian conditions. So firstly, it is clearly it's it's 40 percent genetic or so. And religious experience seems to be about 66 percent genetic. Secondly, it, it correlates with fertility which would imply that it, it's something that would have been selected for. Um, thirdly, it correlates with mental and physical health. Um, and fourthly, we, which again would imply it's been selected for, and it seems to correlate with this on certain genetic markers as well. Um, and, um, and, 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 uh, and it correlates with other sort of markers of, of, of optimal development. Um, and it also, you can see how it would have been selected for under, under these conditions as well. So that's what became, got me really interested in the genetics of, of religion, yeah. And can you talk a little bit about how the 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 relationship between cognitive ability, the genetics that the genetics that influence cognitive ability, are uh, interrelated with how they influence our, our religion and how our cultural religions influence them in return? And I want to know about that specifically in the context of if we look, if we think of like the history of religion going in four main stages, beginning with primitive animism of hunter gatherers, organized religion emerging in the Neolithic with farming hierarchical Indo-European religions dominating over the Bronze Age, and finally scriptural religion uh, in the in the medieval onwards sort of times. Okay, well, I mean, basically, we, we know from twin studies that religiousness is strongly genetic, is not strongly, but it's significantly genetic. It's it's 40% genetic. And we can we can see, um, we, we got, we've, in terms of how it's selected, and we know it selects for health, and we know it selects for, it's for mental health, physical health, and for fertility. So what's, what's going on? And it seems um, that a, a reasonable hypothesis is that religiousness, um, and, uh, there's a number of means by which it would have been, it would have come about. So first of all, it means that you, you perceive uh, the world, um, um, you, you over-perceive agency. So you see a god or spirits or whatever, some kind of agency behind events. And that has an advantage because if you get it, if you are walking along in a forest and you hear a noise, if you think that it might be a, an agent like a wolf and it is an agent, then that may well have saved your life. And if it isn't an agent, that won't have damaged you much. So mm -hmm. if, you, if you get it, so it's, it's good to over-detect agency, to make the error in the direction of agency. So you can see in that sense how people then, at times when they're highly instinctive, at times of stress, because that's when we tend to be the most in touch with our cognitive um, um, inclinations, with our, with our, with our instincts, um, will be prone to over-detect agency and to over-detect causation. And you see this again, you, you've gone black. Um, you see this again and again. Are you still there? I'm back. I'll, I'll be back uh, in a second. Just oh, yeah. camera you, 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 see, you, see, you see this again and again. There's evidence that people, not even they overtake at, at times of crisis, at times of great stress, people tend to, um, that there's no such, people will tend to assume that there's something behind events. They tend to be prone to conspiracy theories. They right. tend to be prone to, to, to nothing being a coincidence. They also, we're also, we also seem to be adapted to over-detect causation. And a part mm -hmm. of religiousness is, is obviously causation and making sense of the world. Um, 
Over-detecting causation, again, means if you assume that the thing, the noise that you've heard is caused by something, this could save your life. If you don't, then you haven't lost anything. Um, and so the, and so everything's caused by something else. And this is kind of quite fundamental to religion, that there's no such thing as, as, as just a coincidence. So this is good. Um, thirdly, once humans became self-conscious, self self-aware, then obviously, unlike most animals, they'd be aware of the possibility of their own death. So how can you, this is a stressful thing, this is a, not, not a nice thing to know about, so how can you reduce stress? Well, if you can, if you can believe that there's an eternal God who's, who's there and that, that everything's structured and everything makes sense and everything's gonna be okay, um, you've got this eternal kind of best friend, if you like, who, who loves you and is looking after you, you're kind of in a sense of perpetual child, then you can see how this would calm people down. It would therefore be, um, selected for at the natural level because these people would be less likely to be mentally ill and physically ill and they'd be more calm and so they'd be more likely to survive. It would be selected for at the sexual level because these people would be lower in mental instability uh, and they would be um, basically just better mates and more successful kind of people. So you can see how religious is selected for there. Third, and then finally, once we start to build up complex kind of social organizations, then there's going to be a benefit to being pro-social. Um, and to having high impulse control, because you've got, to, these are the two main things that predict getting on with people, basically, that you are, well, A, that you're mentally stable, which we've seen with the already, but B, that you, you are altruistic, you are empathetic, and that you have high uh, impulse control, you can control yourself. And so what you, if you were to have this God there, this moral God who was, who was watching you, and there's evidence that when people feel they're being watched in experiments, they tend to behave in a more pro-social way. And so if you feel you're being watched all the time, then this will make you behave in a more pro-social way. So you'll be less likely to be cast out by the band. And it will also make you, it will elevate your social status and will mean that women will be more likely to select for you. Or if you're a woman, you'll be seen as more trustworthy, uh, a better follower of the rules, less likely to cuckold the male. And therefore, mm. so, you know, and, they're, and, they're, and therefore um, selected for, for that reason. Um, so sexual, sexual right. selection. So all of this is going to start to um, elevate um, these these traits in people and also I mean we know from other data that that in all cultures um, conscientiousness and agreeableness are associated with with religiousness and one aspect of agree of agreeableness is empathy so the ability to to apprehend the minds of others and to and to you know, you know comprehend how other people are thinking people who are high in this trait empathy um, tend uh, which is basically about mentalizing it's about being able to successfully imagine the minds of other people, being able to successfully read social external signals of, of in, inward states. And people that are very high in mentalizing will, will be very good at doing this. And people who are very, very high in mentalizing, I think, would be what we call schizophrenics. And they will see and they will perceive. For, presumably, they're not so attractive. No, no, they're not. There's, there's, but, 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 but on that, on that um, spectrum of schizotypu, there'll be an optimum attractive person, if you like, who won't be the extreme schizophrenic, but he'll be somewhere on there, and, and or she'll be somewhere on there, and, and that person therefore will read, will apprehend a mind, will see, will, will, will read from the world signals of an underlying mind. Um, and, and therefore, we'll see it, we'll see evidence of God's of the existence of an agent in the world itself. At the other extreme, you have the person who is a high functioning autistic. Those people can't do that. They are systematizers, but they can't do empathy, and they tend to be atheists, um, even in the modern world. So all yeah. of these things are going to elevate this ba very basic uh, 
kernel, if you like, of, of religiousness that will then be sexually selected for, individually selected for, and then group selected for as well. There's this concept of group selection. So you can pass on your genes individually, you can pass on your genes at the level of the kin, the kin group, you know, by looking after your nephews and nieces, and at the level of the extended phenotype, basically the, you know, the extended uh, group of cousins that is your ethnic group. Um, and there's evidence that religiousness tends to elevate um, as the will of God um, a, a, a behavior that is adaptive in terms of group selection. So it tends to make you more inclined to make sacrifices for the group and to think the group is good and to think the group is the one good group um, and to um, also to hate outsiders and to see outsiders as evil mm -hmm. um, and, mm. and, and, and bad. And there's also data from the modern, modern data which finds that people that are fundamentalists, religious fundamentalists, tend to be highly in terms of their group. So it will also elevate group selection. And there's evidence from computer models that all else being equal, the group that is the most highly positively and negatively ethnocentric is the group that tends to dominate the dominate in, in, in computer models of, of the interaction of different groups. So for all these reasons, you, I think you, you'd end up with something like religion, what you call the primitive form of religion. Um, right. Now then, as as as, um, as society develops and you you get more complex societies and you you know you you farming and this kind of thing, then you're starting to interact with people who you don't know, with people who who you you, you, you the, the, we don't are coming in yeah, with with, re, with research by you know J. Philippe Rushton and people like this of genetic similarity theory, and we know that we're more inclined to cooperate with people who we're genetically related to, who we know we're related to. And so mm -hmm. um, the more successful group will, will be able to build basically a larger policy, a, lar a larger group. Now, um, how, can you, how can you do that? Well, um, one way of doing that is if the religion, the, way, the religious way of thinking starts to change such that being related, being a, a kin becomes um, less important and being of the same religion becomes more important. There always has to be a balance. You can't be too low in ethnocentrism. If you're too low in ethnocentrism, then you don't pass on your genes. It's no, right. it's no good. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're too high in ethnocentrism, the, I, you're, you're too inclined to repel outsiders, then you will remain this small group that doesn't trade. It can't trade. It can't pick up new ideas. Its gene pool can't expand, you see? Yes. And, so, and, so, and so therefore, there's going to be some kind of niche for a group that has basically reduced ethnocentrism it can't go below an optimum but reduced ethnocentrism um and right. elevated openness to new ideas um elevated uh genius really and a, a more of a kind of class of people who the genius tends to be highly intelligent combined with moderately low agreeableness and moderately low conscientiousness and this means that they can come up with new ideas and think outside the box but they can also they don't new ideas always offend vested interests and they don't care about that and so this is what i look at in my, my new book race differences and ethnocentrism um and so then you have this as it were this more genius inclined group and they are better able to they come up with brilliant inventions they can beat other groups in war they're better able to trade they can take on new technology they can expand their gene pool gets bigger geniuses come up by genetic chance so you create more geniuses and they get bigger and bigger and bigger now how do you hold a group like that together when these people are not particularly genetically similar and the thing the key thing that makes people want to cooperate is genetic similarity well one way is through changing the nature of the gods so if the gods become um Less about simply, you know, quid pro quo, scrap you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours, and more about these moral guardians. So, so if you genuinely believe in the God, 
at the God says you have to be moral and behave in a moral way. And therefore, belief in that God becomes an insurance policy. Um, even though I don't know you and I don't meet, I've never met you and you're not related to me more than distantly, I can trust you and cooperate with you because you believe in that God. And I believe in that God. And we both believe that bad things may happen to us in the next life if we offend that God. And so you can see how there would be a benefit for the nature of the religion to start to change more in the direction of what you start to see with these agricultural societies, which is that the, um, mm. the gods, they have these more complex myths where gods kind yeah. of are a, bit, are a bit like humans and they interact and have arguments and problems are solved. And, 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 and but, but I should say that even I was agree, agree with everything. It was a very fascinating uh, account there, but there are um, examples where, I mean, certainly the hunter-gatherer societies prior to uh, agriculture, and we have not, we don't have to just rely on archaeology for that because we have some in the in the recent times have still been encountered. They do have uh, trade with uh, other tribes, and they do and and the and the and the often there's a kind of a religious a, a, a religious notion behind the meeting of the tribes where they're sort of like a taboo against violent activity in these interchanges or something so so i i would personally think that this uh, development you've described may pre have preceded uh, agriculture well, and, perhaps uh, so, but, 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 but the, the, the point is the the extent of it how, mm -hmm. yeah. how how pronounced it is and you would you would expect it to become more pronounced as agriculture uh, develops yet more pronounced as city states develop Yes. Um, and, and there are and there are other I mean, there are other dimensions to it as to it as to it as well. I mean, stress yeah. elevates religiousness. But another another dimension that elevates religiousness is a feeling of exclusion. These, these two things seem in modern times seem to make people more religious. Being stressed, mortality salience particularly, um, and a feeling of ex being feeling that you're excluded and kind of on the borders. And this is quite interesting in the sense that you could say that monotheism and the belief in a God who is just absolute pure morality and who you must obey can be seen as an extreme manifestation of this 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 method. Mm. Yeah, you know, Yahweh or whatever. Um, yeah. where, 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 whereby you must you must um, uh, have this highly moral society, and by that means you can hold together a large polity. But but interestingly, that doesn't seem to develop among the city states so much as those that are on the borders of the city states, and mm -hmm. so such as the, firstly the Hebrews, um, and then oh, the princes of the empire. Mm. Yes, yes, and so and and then this and this this seems to very strongly bond them together, make them very strongly group selected. Um, and therefore allow them to make make waves basically but so so but but i think that's simplifying it i mean that's one of the see how religiousness and genetics interact yeah excellent account and i think that's a great introduction for everyone and they can uh, go into more detail on some of your videos i believe you covered uh, uh, these themes before but um to apply them to a specific uh, historical framework um what I, we can say to sort of saying that we've evolved even from an early stage to kind of pre predisposed to see the hand of God in nature, uh, so to speak. Um, and this uh, with the development of, of agriculture in the Neolithic spreading across from the Middle East and the Near East and into Europe, we're going to we see um, a new uh, population genetics, so a new uh, genetic signal enters Europe. And what had formerly been all the Mesolithic hunter-gatherers who were quite inbred and uh, separate tribes who had become somewhat genetically distinct from each other due to uh, the fact that they weren't very numerous and, and they were quite isolated and they would inbreed uh, in their isolation. Suddenly the introduction of this new uh, 
a new a new genetic signal from Anatolia. Uh, it spreads across Europe, and they all the way from Sweden and fin fin all the way from Sweden down to Spain. The genetic diversity of Europe becomes far less, and for about a thousand years, you have these Neolithic Europeans. The only major genetic diversity in Europe is caused by their mixing with the pre-existing Mesolithic European uh, hunter-gatherers. So I think we can presume that they were also quite. Um, I mean, one, only 1,000 years of dispersal, we can assume they were quite uh, genetically and also culturally, linguistically, and perhaps religiously similar uh, for all that period. Yet, uh, and, and there's also evidence of uh, extent trade routes between, in the Neolithic, for example, linking uh, Brittany, Britain, and Spain, all along the Atlantic coast. So um, there was obviously a great deal of in, a new level of trust and uh, interconnectivity caused by whatever this Neolithic religion was, uh, which built things like Stonehenge, for example. Uh, but during that time, we don't see a great deal of innovation beyond uh, the introduction of farming, which they already had these people before in, in the Near East. Uh, they, they build megaliths, and that's a new thing in Europe, but is it... Um, I mean, they probably might have, there was already megaliths in Turkey area, so perhaps they brought that technology in. And that technology, I mean, Stonehenge is certainly bigger than the uh, than earlier versions of um, stone circles, so maybe they got better at building bigger stone circles, but um, they didn't get very good at metallurgy. They didn't seem to domesticate any new animals like the cow and the sheep, uh, and uh, these things were already domesticated in the Middle East before. So European farmers don't seem to have invented a great deal. Um, whereas when we have in moving to the Indo-European times, we start to see uh, a change in the, um, the number of inventions and the introduction of more complicated uh, metallurgy. Now, what can we, with our limited uh, knowledge about the DNA of the of these times and of the archaeology and the and the increased innovations, what can we infer about the cognitive abilities of these different populations? I mean, I, I said to you when when we were dis discussing things beforehand, my my area is very much more modern intelligence and, and, and modern religion. So I should stress to your your viewers that I'm you know in, in I'm kind of um, I'm kind of uh, on the fly with these kinds of these kinds of um, answers to some extent, and I kowtow to. Uh, to survive the jive's um, superior knowledge on these things, but 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 um, what what occurs to me is that if you look at the a lot of the innovation um, um, in in different parts of Europe, you see that one of the problems with there's a theory in 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 um, uh, psychology known as Cold Winter's theory, and the idea is that one of the factors that selects for intelligence is is basically also well, a key factor is in racial differences in intelligence, which we have quite sound evidence exist um, and and that seem to be genetic because we've got these we've got these um, these IQ studies by people like Lynn and Van Hennen and whatever and most recently Lynn and Becker on 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 national differences in average IQ and these correlated about 0.9 with national differences in the percentage of the population carrying alleles which which were associated with um, high IQ. 
So these differences seem to be um, selected for by different environments. One of the key factors is cold. So if it's, if it's a cold yet predictable environment, then this means that you have to be able to deal with the cold. You have to be able to think, think about the future. You have to be able to make warm clothes and better houses and all, all this kind of thing. And so this is going to select for intelligence. And if it's a predictable environment, then it's going to select in favor of time preference, of low time preference, that you, you can conceive of a winter's day at the height of summer. And that's associated quite, quite significantly with, with intelligence as well. So it selects for intelligence. Now, the problem with that theory um, is twofold. What doesn't fit with it is that you would expect, therefore, a group like the Inuit to be, or the Sami, to be highly intelligent, but certainly with the, we don't have very good data on the Sami, but with the Inuit, the average IQ seems to be about 90. So, so you know, what's going on there? Why aren't the, the Inuit peoples highly, highly, highly intelligent? Mm. Um, and um, a second, um, uh, well, that, uh, this, is a, yeah, this is a key problem. And in understanding this, it seems that one, of, one factor that's been proposed is agriculture. So once you introduce agriculture, then this will interfere. This will have a selection pressure on intelligence. It will very strongly select for uh, people who have high time preference and can plan and can think of the future and all that kind of thing. And those that are part of the group that, that, that can't cope with that and remain hunter-gatherers and whatever. Or, or so, in, in that case, the, the Ice Age and our hunter-gatherer ancestors in Europe probably were, were not as intelligent as the Neolithic farmers who... who uh, well, it's not, it's it's not just that. There's, there's, a, there's a second point. There's a second point to it. I, I don't think that's, that's necessarily quite true. So, but, but first of all, it's certainly true that agriculture will elevate. There's some there's some um, hypothesis anyway that agriculture would seem to elevate in, in um, uh, intelligence. It acts as selection pressure once it's introduced. But a second issue is simply that if you are only, if you are in a very 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 harsh environment, then you are only just surviving. Um, right. Your gene pool will tend to be very small. Um, this will mean because if, it's, if it deviates from the optimum, then you'll basically just die. This will mean that you will be less likely to throw up geniuses. Geniuses, remember, are these high IQ, high, outlier high IQ combined with basically moderately psychopathic personality. And um, this is a very unlikely combination. And if you're only just surviving, and it's the more cooperative, internally cooperative groups that are more likely to survive, then geniuses, A, won't be likely to be thrown up, and B, will be a bad thing if they are thrown up, because the flip side of them will be high IQ or very low IQ criminals, basically. Right. And, and they will be so damaging to the society that you don't really want to have those. So there'll be reasons for, for not having genius or for strongly suppressing people who are a bit deviant, really, who, who, who are a bit the genius type, the kind of high-functioning autistic, basically, for strongly suppressing and killing um, people like that um, when they when they manifest themselves. You've got, a, and it will be more difficult to develop a, a class of people who aren't up against, who aren't just surviving and can afford to experiment with things. And it will be dangerous indeed to experiment with things. It will basically be a dangerous thing to do when you're strongly adapted to the ecology. No good experimenting with things. And so you'd expect very high selection for conscientiousness. Very very high selection for uh, for agreeableness, which would mean not much room for the personality traits associated with intelligence, and a very narrow gene pool, thus not much room for outlier high IQ. So they could have quite high IQ, but for a combination of genetic and environmental reasons, they wouldn't necessarily innovate that much. And okay. um, I think that's what you see. I've done a paper with this with my Japanese colleague, Ken Yakura. 
Um, and we're fascinated by why it is that the East Northeast Asians, despite having an average IQ of 105, which is a third of a standard deviation higher than the average European or Western European IQ, um, have in terms of their per capita innovation, it's really not very good. It's, it's you know, almost all, even though they seem to be cleverer than us, than Europeans, um, the per capita, but they don't seem to come up with original ideas. And Ken's theory, which myself and my colleague Jan Tanishan has also also developed, is simply is what I just said that they are evolved to this cold yet stable ecology, and it basically it selects strongly in favour of social anxiety, so that everyone can get on, um, which means that the group is more likely to survive, but and therefore against genius. It selects against basically curiosity. It selects against intellectual curiosity. Um, 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 and therefore against wanting to try new things, select against curiosity. But, but once the, the people like this come in contact with people who are from further south and who have innovated something, something that they haven't, then they may, may well be at least as intelligent as them, if not more intelligent than them, and they will be able to then run with it and develop further things. And moreover, once they get hold of some, some technology that's been developed in a, in, a, in a less harsh climate, because their climate is harsher, then once they've got it, let's say agriculture, there will be very strong selection in their ecology, more so than in the more southern ecologies for intelligence and for these personality traits that predict socioeconomic status. And therefore, they may well take off and overtake those who came up with the original idea, such as agriculture. And that right. may well be what happened in the case of Europe. So, so the, the introduction of agriculture is like a spark that can ignite uh, the, the fuel that m must have developed in the, in the course of, a, of a, uh, environmental pressure from a cold environment uh, for hunter-gatherers, uh, if I can use that. Um, yes, that's uh, a reasonable I, metaphor, I think, yes. Okay. Well, I was interested in what you were saying before, earlier, about the um, evolution of, uh, or the traits associated with religion and um, and inheritable uh, behaviors uh, for hating outsider groups and for in-group selection and things. Because um, we don't know very much about, we don't know anything about the Neolithic religion really, uh, except that they had some some concern with this, with, this, with this firmament and with the movements of the planets and the sun and whatever. Uh, but we know a fair bit about Indo-European religion and uh, it does seem, uh, and also, to be honest, um, according to uh, the expert on religion, uh, Mircea Eliade, many religions, not just Indo-European, but it's a, a thing, that a trait where there is um, the, the, the gods kind of like on our side, uh, that's your side, whatever your tribe is. And they um, and when when you have a victory over another tribe that is the same as when the gods have a victory over their enemies and and vice versa. So the, the god, the, the conflict of the gods with their enemies, whether they be the giants or the titans or whatever god, and Indo-European gods normally do have a, an enemy uh, race of equivalent divine beings who are not friend, who are, who are hostile to the gods. And this is seen as like a reflection of um, of earthly conflict with rival peoples and, and conflict for resources. Um, but we, we see that, well, after the, uh, the, 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 the replacement of paganism, with uh, monotheistic uh, scriptural religions, we see maybe that is replaced by, instead of a tribal aspect to it, rather an ideological one. Would you say that's fair? Where, where uh, the ideological, like the, you, rather than sharing a genetic history, you start to share an ideological uh, framework of, of a belief system. Um, 
Yes, I mean, to some, yes, to some extent. I mean, yes, the, 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 but the, but I mean, what was that? Uh, the, the, the two very, very small people in Gulliver's Travels, and they fight over which side of an egg you should. Yeah, the little enders and the big enders, is it? I think. Yeah, the, the big enders, the Lilliputians, and yeah. and and there's there's this war, and 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 you you of course you start to find, and you see this in the early church as well. You see the most vicious wars and 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 you know and massacres over 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 a diphthong, over homoousios or homeousios. <laughs> um, and so and 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 I, I it strikes me that these little things become important, very possibly because they are genetic markers. They are all there. All, all, well, two things. First of all, they are they are markers of whether you are in group or out group. Um, so this is important. So they are markers of your. Uh, what was it? The Tertullian said, "I believe it because it's absurd." And so the idea is that you indicate the degree to which you are prepared to be loyal to the group by um, basically submitting your intellectual faculties by saying, "I believe in the Trinity" or whatever it happens to be. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that it that it, it might not make any logical sense. The point is that you have to believe it. And by believe, there are some parallels we could make with certain with the secular beliefs of. Uh, well, yes, but let's not get let's not get demonetized um, this evening. Um, <laughs> um, there, there, there are certain, um, and, and so you you submit to the group and you say you say you you believe it, and so this means that you're accepted. If you don't do that, then you are a traitor to the group. You're a free rider, and people particularly hate those. And we're evolved to hate those. Um, uh, you're a collaborator with, a, with, with, a, with another group who's operating the same process. And it's the research by J. Philippe Rushton has shown that even based on political differences, on differences of uh, quite minor things, that there often can be a genetic element to it. So there is a degree to which people, people friends, for example, people that are friends, um, tend to be more genetically similar than could possibly be the case by chance. Um, they looked at voting preferences in the USA, and they found that there's a strong genetic element to, to which political party you're inclined to vote for, this, this, this sort of thing. Um, indeed, there's some evidence that your political, political viewpoint is quite strongly genetic. So these, these, these are genetic cleavages. Um, it's, just that, yeah, it's just that they are dressed up as ideological cleavages. And what you said about mm. about what's happening in the world at the moment with the you know the clown world and the the, the, the current yeah. ideology that may well be, and this has been proposed by Russian as well, basically a genetic fight within Europeans. To um, get rid of the, the outsider, the uh, the uh, neuro atypicals who aren't capable of believing two plus two equals five. Yes, precisely. Yes, yes. So you're you're going to uh, th those those people um, are, are combined with people that perhaps, as, as I look at it in my 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 article, um, the uh, um, the mutant says in his heart there is no god. Um, you're going to get more and more of these people with the collapse of Darwinian selection who will have traits, both physical and mental, that would have been wiped out, that would have been purged under conditions of Darwinian selection with 40% child mortality because it would mm -hmm. have been those that had a, a, a you know, high mutational load and thus a poor immune system that would have been wiped out, but having a, a high physical mutational load combined with having a high mental mutational load because the brain is about 88% of the genome, and so consequently we can talk about these people as being spiteful mutants who would have had ideas that would have been maladaptive under Darwinian in conditions such as atheism or, or um, antinatalism or, or you know, these 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 kinds of things, and you'd expect those people to be operating in their in their genetic interests with their genetic death wish, and so they would be they would be fighting um, against the religious people who would have survived probably the fundamentalist Christians who probably would have would be alive under Darwinian conditions a lot of them, um, and also the neuroatypicals who just 
can't help themselves but question nonsense when they're confronted with it. So, so um, yes. So, I so, would yes. know about more about how this this behavior going back again to to, to the historical time, how it could infer on what uh, uh, could sort of understand how these sort of uh, biological tendencies might have influenced historical events. For example, the if the Neolithic people had been you know, that their tendency to bring people together to decrease tribalism and increase trust may have made them vulnerable then to a new incoming population who were, whose religion and uh, whose, uh, by, by, by association, their, their genetics uh, predisposed them to uh, preying upon and, uh, and uh, ruthlessly exploiting outgroups. Um, yeah, I mean, this is Ibn Khaldun's, you know, Ibn Khaldun, the, the um, medieval Islamic philosopher, and he and he he notes that what you'll tend to get is you'll 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 get you'll, you'll get a group of people who become highly um, group selected. So they are, you know, they are they are um, uh, they're high impulsive and negative ethnocentrism. Those people under harsh conditions, and they will build to some degree a kind of civilization to some you know whether it's a high civilization or some kind of civilization but what this will do is at least among the higher class is it will make them kind of less stressed it will make them less uh, more open to new ideas and whatever and also the other problem with with intelligence um is intelligence tends to be associated with very pro-social ways of broadly pro-social ways of acting so intelligent people are higher in altruism they are higher in trust they are they are um they are they are more hypnotizable they are, there's all kinds of uh, and and these can be in, in if the conditions become insufficiently harsh then these things can be weaponized against you because that suddenly you'll be open to outsiders you'll be kind to outsiders you'll be you'll be, you'll be empathetic to outsiders right and so, right. And so it's perfectly conceivable then that you might get a group that would come along that is very, very, very high in ethnocentrism, and if yeah. they uh, and, and and have been in very, very harsh conditions indeed, and if they are confronted with a group that is in a, a more relaxed conditions and therefore more um, more prone to be kind, basically and whatever, then they could destroy them. So that's yeah, I guess that we could say that um, if the Neolithic were were in, in, and the and the in in. Uh, who were that stage of trust and then they were therefore vulnerable to the Indo-European invaders and similarly now with the replacement of paganism with Christianity we've had a slow process after a, a sort of uh, ideological differences within uh, within Christianity and whether those were motivated by genetics or not have been somewhat uh, uh, ironed out we now have a, a generally high trust society equivalent to what we had, what was in Europe in the Neolithic, perhaps, and now ripe once again for exploitation. Well, yes, indeed. I mean, that's what I look at in my book, Race Differences and Ethnocentrism. I say that we've, we've developed this very high level of intelligence, um, and we've developed this system of, of being low in ethnocentrism, but high, uh, which has meant that we've got this relatively large gene pool, high intelligence, and, 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 and quite high conscientiousness and agreeableness, so we can create a functioning civilization. This allows us to throw up these geniuses, um, and expand and throw up more geniuses and expand and you know destroy other countries and create an empire and it's all fine under Darwinian or reasonably um, or reasonably good Darwinian conditions because our ethnocentrism doesn't fall below a certain level because right. we are under a certain level of stress under a certain level of mortality salience um, and this means because we're stressed we're more likely to be religious and religiousness elevates ethnocentrism. Um, and secondly, we're just more likely to be instinctive and, and instinctive, if you're instinctive, you're more likely to A, be religious and B, be ethnocentric. But once mm -hmm. um, our level of, of, um, of, uh, of 
luxury is so high, once our level of stress and mortality standards are so low, then religiousness collapses, um, our feelings of ethnocentrism um, collapse, and because we have, we, we don't, um, there's no Darwinian selection, there's no, there's no child mortality anymore, we have what my colleague calls these spiteful mutants who advocate these maladaptive ideas, and the more hypnotizable, the more open-minded of people in the society will adopt those ideas and will elevate status by doing so. And this will further undermine the structures such as religion that are, that are adaptive. And then once that happens, then your intelligence, i.e. high altruism and, and uh, high openness and, and uh, high trust and all this can be weaponized against you. And so to permit what's happening mm -hmm. at the moment, as I argue in my book, is a bit like letting people who've been under conditions of Darwinian selection for longer i.e. those from the Middle East, and thus who are highly adaptive to come into European societies. I mean, you can see what's going on. It's like letting, uh, you know, wild animals into a zoo, basically. And yeah. so, yeah. But um, you say uh, religion is, um, is, is, is an adaptive evolutionary strategy in a way, and, the, um, and, and it correlates with intelligence and with um, ethnocentrism, did you say? Uh, yes. So, so, but could you also uh, concede, concede that it might be possible that uh, certain religion, well, in fact, the, the universal religions could have contributed to uh, the tendency of, of, de of re reducing ethnocentrism among, among certain populations, being that Christianity introduces the notion of the global brotherhood of man, we're all descended from Adam and things like that, that hadn't previously existed. Um, I'm well. I'm not sure about that because because I think that what what you tend to get with these religious with with the religions that survive up to the point you up to the point of um, of uh, of the industrial revolution and thus method, thus the intensity of Darwinian selection rapidly decreasing. It, it's simply what has survived is those religions which which have been adaptive. The, 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 the religions that haven't been adaptive and the religions and the the variants of the religions that haven't been adaptive such as the shakers where they said you shouldn't have children or whatever um, yeah. those, those 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 religions have died out um right. and, and 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 people have you've got this massive corpus of information you've got all these i mean if you think about even in the early church before they made the bible there were all these different biblical books that some that people some people the people in charge either decided should be kept in or should be removed. And, mm. and they would have had their motivations for doing that. Um, probably to some degree, evolutionary, um, evolutionary, evolutionary motivations to some extent, or personal motivations or whatever. Um, and, and so what's happened is that you've got these corpus of texts and it's been interpreted in a, an adaptive fashion up until a certain point. And therefore the religion has survived. So, I mean, you can say that they have this universal brotherhood of man stuff in, 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 in Christianity, and, they, and, and of course they do, but the way in which it's been interpreted by the people that have been running the show has been such that it's been adaptive. They, they, they've managed to manipulate it in such a way as to make it adaptive. It mm -hmm. strikes me you could probably, and people I'm sure are doing this, um, interpret Hinduism, um, which is an ethnic religion, 
um, in, a, in an adaptive brotherhood of man kind of way. Yeah, it has been interpreted that way. If you wanted to be to perform sufficient theological gymnastics, you could say, oh, well, there's a day on, of the year in which if you're a female, you can put a rib, a, a bit of wool around your friend's hand who's a male, and this makes him your brother, and then and then he's a Hindu, and and then he's that's it, he's one of us. You know, you could you could you could you could play up these kinds of. Um, there's a balance in these all of these different religions, which you might argue, as Alan de Benoit argues, you know, mm -hmm. Alan de Benoir, the French yes. between yes. between um, an archetypal monotheism and an archetypal sort of polytheism. And mm -hmm. uh, you could say an archetypal universalism and an archetypal particularism. And mm -hmm. and and um, in, in most of uh, European history, the, precisely the reason why, or not precisely, but one of the reasons why Europe has managed to ascend is because its interpretation of Christianity got the balance right between particularism and universalism, such that it wasn't too particular that it was inward looking and closed and, 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 and cut itself off and, and didn't do anything, but it wasn't too universal that it balkanized and was swamped by outsiders. Um, so I, I'm not, I mean, you, yes, you, you may be right that it introduces these notions, but I wonder if perhaps you could, you could see that in, I mean, Buddhism can be regarded as quite a universal religion, but in, yeah. the, way, in the way that it's currently presented in the countries that are Buddhist, particularly Sri Lanka, um, is it's is it's it's, it's presented as basically a highly ethnocentric kind of religion. But that is, yeah, I, that, I, you're absolutely right. But that is a that isn't so much of a, a theological development as a as a necessity to certain political realities in Sri Lanka, um, and, and and ethnic conflicts that happen to also have religious divides. But I thought, as I said, as you pointed out, often these what are outwardly religious conflicts are in, in fact genetic conflicts. And I think the Tamil Sinhalese conflict is not really about uh, theology. No, no, it's not. No, for sure it's not. But 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 it's it's a, it's a way, as we discussed earlier, if once you make it a theological conflict, then you give people more of a reason to act adaptively, because suddenly mm. it's not just you should lay down your life for your country, it's the gods or God or whatever is saying you should do that. And there is clearly a God, and so your whole struggle becomes of eternal significance. So that's mm -hmm. why I think that that's uh, that's relevant. Uh, but I, I think yeah, you may be right. It introduces it, it's a universalist religion. Islam is a universalist religion. Mm -hmm. um, but, what, but what about what about conversions within every society? I mean, we weren't always Christian ourselves, and within every society, there are always the minority of people who convert. Do you think? Um, can we typify those in a genetic sense? Are they all maladaptive mutants or are some of them uh, a positive influence on society? Well, when you say maladaptive mutants, I think it's important to stress that what, what I mean by that or what Michael Woodley means by that is, in, is, is, a, is something that's manifested in conditions of weakened Darwinian selection. Right. So in conditions of weakened Darwinian selection, of course, there is less purging of mutation. Um, right. Therefore, there are more mutants, and, and, and mutation will almost always—not always, because there can, can be adaptive mutations—but will will almost always be um, maladaptive. Under conditions of, of harsh Darwinian selection, you would expect there to be—it's um, not so much that everybody is in a certain way, but that there is an optimum balance between different kinds of people, and the society has to get that right. So, in general, you want a society that's where the people are going to be high in what we call general factor of personality—that is to say, in aspects of agreeableness, conscientiousness, 
um, high mental stability, high sort of openness to, to new ideas and, and, and aspects of extroversion. And they're high in this, this manifold that we call general, which correlates a called general factor of personality. And those people um, are going to all get on with each other and whatever, and they're going to make sacrifices for the society and they're going to be pro-social and blah, 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 blah. But you can't have everybody like that because the people that come up with interesting and original new ideas tend to be quite different from that. They tend to be to combine very, very high intelligence, outlaw high intelligence, with moderately low general factor of personality or at least moderately low aspects of general low conscientiousness low agreeableness this this sort of thing and you mm -hmm. have to have an optimum percentage of those people um and and equally you have to have uh, perhaps even an optimum percentage of people that are very very conservative and an optimum percentage of the, the genius type who will often be quite open-minded and, and open to new things uh, it seems to me there are two kinds of people that tend to alter their their perspective. So the first is people that are high in this personality trait openness. So these people will be in, it's a bit of a fuzzy trait, but these people are basically open to new ideas, new things, experimenting, whatever. So these right. people will be open to new things, people that are high in, in this trait openness, which tends to be correlated, by the way, with kind of liberal religiosity and things like that. Openness in then you have the people, the convert, those that com that actually undergo conversion experiences. Okay. Um, this tends to be associated with neuroticism, so people who are basically mentally unstable. Because they're mentally unstable, they suffer from a high degree of stress. Because they suffer from a high degree of stress, we know that religiousness is an adaptation to stress. You become more religious when you're very, very stressed. So consequently, they have a they have a very high degree of stress triggers off this overwhelming religious experience and then you have the kind of zeal of the convert and um, the with a lot of those people though they can be quite unstable in that so they'll they'll go to the you'll get people sometimes they'll be an extreme christian and then they'll they'll be an extreme vegan such that their hair falls out and then they're, they're all and then they'll be an extreme nazi and then an extreme communist and they're always experimenting with different identities that's what mentally unstable people are like so it's those two kinds of people that would tend towards um towards new things and so in terms of understanding and the openness by the way correlates with intelligence this is the interesting thing okay. so openness correlates 0.3 with intelligence so there's a degree to which people that are intelligent are inclined towards questioning and are inclined within certain boundaries within certain boundaries because they yeah. are better at perceiving what the norm is of the society and in norm mapping and in, in thus kind of effortfully controlling what they think such that they think the correct thing but um, intelligent people tend to be, therefore, more inclined towards new things. And what you see in a good example is Korea with religion. The people in the, the group in Korea that have the lowest IQ is the Buddhists. That's the oldest or one of the oldest religions in Korea is Buddhism or the Korean equivalent of Shinto, um, which is parallel with Buddhism. Then you have those that are Catholic. That's in the middle. And then you have those that are Protestant, which is the newest religion to come to Korea. Um, and those people tend to be the highest in intelligence. And you get, um, well, it's not always like this. I mean, for example, I don't know, there are parts of Germany, Bavaria, for example, is very wealthy and it's Catholic. But um, in, 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 in general, this association tends to, tends to work. I, I think you touched on something that I, quite, I'm quite interested in, which is that within, there are certain, there are certain subgroups within a society where perhaps what is in what might be maladaptive or socially destructive can can be beneficial in the long term for the species if it occurs within a certain elite perhaps and that uh, made me think about how the indo-europeans had um 
uh, hierarchical religion, and we can see that in other parts. I mean, technically, all religions are hierarchical. Christianity has the Pope and the Cardinals and bishops and stuff as well. So I'd say still, even within that, you have a, a certain biological type who's more like to be a priest within Christian society. But all, in, in something like in Hinduism, where that hierarchy is is quite clearly delineated, you can see it genetically, um, but the, the difference between the castes. Uh, and the intelli the IQ difference between castes and the and the and the and other aspects. So, um, would you say that this is adaptive? This has been an evolutionary adaptation as well, where we have certain um, certain behaviors and traits and like tendencies to openness, which could be which are destructive if if um, too widely spread, but can be beneficial within or within a certain context. Yes, I mean, that's consistent with what I was saying about genius. If everybody in a society was a Sheldon Cooper type and was a genius, then nobody would breed and nobody would have babies and nobody would get on with each other and the society would just collapse. So what's, what's beneficial is, to a certain degree, having, as you say, different castes of people that are, that are of different types. And it would be having the optimum balance between those different types that would be the most beneficial to the survival of the group. In much the same way that if you have a beehive and that beehive has, I don't know, too many workers and not enough queens and too many drones and not enough members of the feeder caste or whatever, then it's maladaptive. The important, the important thing is to, in, 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 the, in, a, in your particular evolutionary context, is to is is to have this this optimum balance between um, different kinds of people. An obvious example is with the shaman figure. So right. in, in very, in very primitive societies, you tend to have this this shaman figure. Um, from what we know of the shaman, he tends to be in some ways quite similar to a genius. He tends to be sort of a bit uh, this unusual, unworldly, peculiar figure often asexual or homosexual or something like that, which is, mm. I, I did actually a paper on this called The Gay Shaman Theory, where we looked into oh, why, yes. why is it, that, what, what is this, what is it, what's going on? Why is it that in, in even in primitive societies, um, shame, uh, the religious figures tend to be, if not gay, um, then at the very least effeminate. Um, well, transsexualism is associated with shamanism in many cultures, yes, I believe. Yes, what's, what's going on? And we find that more than transsexualism, because that's a modern thing. Transvestism, I should say. Transvestism, yes. There's Native American culture, for example, where they dress as uh, I forget which one it is, where they traditionally dressed as females and would even smear themselves in blood to make it look like they were menstruating. The, the mm. shamans do this. Um, the olive something or other. But anyway, the um, yes. And so this is the uh, religious people. The argument is that with homosexuality is that what a homosexual is is a highly feminized uh, male. Um, women are more uh, religious than men. Um, probably in part because they're higher in agreeableness and higher in conscientiousness. So homosexuals are therefore more religious than heterosexual men. And so homosexuals will be inclined towards a religious life, particularly in a society where homosexual activity is taboo or, or unthinkable or, 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 or limited only to something which teenagers do during their rite of passage or unacceptable among adults or whatever it happens to be. And so those people will be more inclined to become shamans and they therefore will invest their energies not in passing on their genes at the level of, of, the, of uh, directly or at the level even of the kin, but at the level of the group. They will behave in such a way that they elevate the religiousness of the group and they inspire the group and whatever and they make the group feel that by the miracles they do, you know, by the descent into the underworld and all this, that they do, they will inspire the group and they are group selected. And so it follows that there would therefore be other groups, other castes, um, such as a particularly noblesse oblige aristocracy, for example, that would be group selected as well. And it could be argued that one of the, I mean, we talked earlier about the, the Islam and the rise of Islam and what it's doing to, to Europe. Um, and one of the things that occurs to me um, is that we, 
is that we were well, to myself and Michael rather when we've been discussing this is that um we had this this noble caste this gentry caste which which had these values of noblesse of liege and of sacrifice for the society and of really the values of the english public school system which inculcated right. strongly with these with these kinds of values that you are you Good are values i'm sorry Good old values. Good old values, yes, but but those weren't the values necessarily of everybody. But they were they were the values of those people, and so those people were really potentially decadent. They were quite wealthy. They never wanted. I look at this in my book, Churchill's headmaster, the sadist nearly saved the British Empire. And I look at Herbert Snake Kinsley and the prep school and public school system. And so they were basically put in a situation where where positive and negative ethnocentrism was and was strongly elevated as were a sense of drive and a sense of submission and a sense of that everything you do is for the society. And um, this was elevating, I suspect, something that was genetically perhaps already there with this cast. It was just taking it even further. Now, with mm -hmm. World War One, this cast is decimated. Your officers, a lot of the officers lost, you mean? Because, yes, because 8% of the troops were, were um, killed, but it was 16% of the officers. And... Yeah. Um, if you'd mm. been to public school, then you, you'd normally been to officer training corps as well. And so consequently, you were given a commission straight away. Um, and not only that, but bravery and gallantry and things like that. Yeah, it's encouraged. Killed. Yeah. And so yeah, it, yeah. It, it decimates this class and this may, and this, this, this particular class. And it may, I, even when I was a child in the 80s, you still had people of this class kind of running the country, people like William Whitelaw or Lord Carrington or whatever that were in, in the cabinet. The warrior elite, which I see as rather an extension of the old Indo-European. Uh, warrior elite. But now that warrior elite has, has pretty much um, um, gone. Replaced by a different kind of an elite. Replaced by an elite that is self-serving and, and an elite that is that is um, that is based around sort of the middle class values, really the striving values of of questioning power values, mercantile values, precisely of the mercantile mm. values. And we know that in in um, from Wills, there's a very interesting book by by uh, a guy called Clark Gregory Clark called uh, the, uh, the the Farewell to Arms, and he looks at a sample of about two thousand Wills in Suffolk and. Uh, and uh, Essex, but in the in the in the 1500s and 1600s, and he shows that, that there's a correlation. If you divide between the richer 50% of the testators and the poorer 50% of testators, um, the richer 50% have an advantage of 40% fertility over the poorer 50%. And intelligence correlates with wealth at about 0.3. So we were it was the survival of the richest we were selecting for wealth, um, and thus for intelligence, and thus getting more intelligent. Um, yes. But it was the mercant. It was the, at the same time that was happening. We know the the, the uh, from another book that that uh, this is again an idea of my colleagues. Another book which uh, Clark did called "The Sun Also Rises." That those with Norman names, yes. I, the, the the ones that were in, descended in the male the gentry that were descended in the male line from these these Normans, uh, were mm. had lower fertility than those with uh, with what we call. Middle class names, names like you know Cooper and whatever these strivers, yes. Um, and so they, the, the the power of these Normans of these gentry was being gradually dis they were being gradually displaced by, as you say, the mercantile values. So when we, mm. we get to a point now where mercantile values are are, are everything, uh, yes. like America, and and uh, there's no there's very little influence now from these these warrior. Well, perhaps we could uh, I could trying to say that that would be a reflection of an, a, a cultural adaptation to the times. Just as I, I think that perhaps Indo-European culture was very successful at that time because having a, 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 social, a society based on a warrior elite was very, uh, very uh, advantageous 
uh, genetically for a people at that time. Right now, it is uh, as advantageous to have for, for or at least for elites to be uh, to be focused on 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 economy and uh, finance, on mercantilism, trade, things like these these kind of things, rather than. Um, than militarism because we have created the idea of war as the absolute evil. So it's sort of uh, socially. Uh, but also, also, I suppose you, it's a good point, and I think you could you could develop that by saying that as we as we move through history from the medieval period onwards, then we tame ourselves to a greater and greater degree, precisely because we are selecting for intelligence and we are selecting for probably conscientiousness and agreeableness. And we have a, what I call in a book I'm doing, I write at the moment, the taming of the gene. We, we, we tame ourselves and therefore we create a situation where war is less and less of an issue. Um, society is more and more stable and, and, we, and we create therefore these empires and there's just less of a need to be a warrior. It's just less useful. It's then, useful. Perhaps we will then have the the uh, the predatory human comes back again, and then the predatory comes back. The yeah, and we've lost our warrior caste because they yeah, well, yeah. But if there's if there if humans become a you know if 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 there's an incentive for a for a cultural or or genetic adaptation or cultural genetic adaptation because we're talking about the two in tandem, then for uh, for a group of people to prey upon society at large, then it, it would it would presumably uh, return and then be selected for as well. Like those people would be able to have more children if it was advantageous for them to yes. behave that way. And it also, I suppose as well, you could argue that um, to the extent that, that socioeconomic status is genetic and according to Clark's research, it seems that across generations, across a number of generations, socioeconomic status seems to be about 70% heritable. So to the extent that we're, we, we are dealing with castes and there's some indication of that that we are, um, you would think that that, that uh, Darwinian selection would have slackened first among the higher castes, among right. the, 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 the higher castes. And so they would have been they would have stopped being subject to Darwinian selection the least recently. And those that are the working class or descendants of them would have stopped being subject to Darwinian selection the most recently. And so you would expect more of these adaptive values to be maintained, such as ethnocentrism and whatever. Um, among that class, which is among the working class, what we find, which is why they vote for Brexit, Brexit presumably. Indeed. Well, th this has been a really fascinating talk. Before we wrap things up, I suppose you need to leave soon. Um, I just want I have a couple of super chats to go through. Not very many. Um, right. No questions. Just one person says, "Hail Dutton, hail England." His name is Lou D Duva. Uh, uh, and. Uh, and, and a lady called Asunta Madoni says hi from Arizona. Um, thank, Hello, you Arizona. Uh, thank you to both of them for their um, for their contributions. Uh, perhaps you'd like uh, an opportunity to uh, plug any books that you're selling at the moment. Or? Um, all right then. So there's um, the ones that we've we've talked of today. So there's At Our Wits End, Why We're Becoming Less Intelligent and What It Means for the Future, which I've written with my colleague Michael Woodley of Manee. And that looks at why we became, it starts in the, the dark ages, so I don't go back to really early stuff, but it looks at why we became more intelligent and then what happened to make us become less intelligent because we seem to have dropped about 15 IQ points between about 1880 and the year 2000. So this is pretty serious stuff. Uh, there's a book I have a copy of with me called um, How to Judge People by What They Look Like, which is on physiognomy. Um, and so it looks at you know, issues, you know, basically, I mean, that was something I was going to go into if you'd wanted me to, which was, you know, that there's a, there's a weak correlation between having blonde hair, blue eyes, and IQ. 
Yeah, there is. Um, you know, these Indo-European traits. There, there you go. Um, so um, it, uh, these these kinds of issues. Another book called The Silent Rape Epidemic, How the Finns Were Groomed to Love Their Abusers, which looks at precisely what we were talking about, this predatory thing, the rise of certain traits and the fall of others and civilizations and the consequences of that. Um, there's race differences and ethnocentrism, which again looks at much of what we've been talking about this evening. And finally, Churchill's headmaster, the sadist, they say the British Empire, which looks at this decline in the gentry and the nobility and so on that again we were, we were talking about in the discussion. So, so yeah, those are, those are my books, and you can find me on the Jolly Heretic, and uh, do 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 come along. We'd be more than uh, more than welcome. Yes, do do uh, subscribe to his channel. It's great fun, and I'd like to thank thank you one more time, Ed, for joining me on Survivor Jive today. It's been really interesting. I think there's a lot more we could have talked about, so perhaps uh, we should uh, pick this up again at another time and have uh, and have a second conversation. Right ho! I look forward to it. Goodbye, everyone, and goodbye, Ed. Goodbye. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.